Peace to you. And thank you for joining me for the welcome. Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you for joining me for the naked truth. Um, we're going to pick up where we left off. We're in the book of 2 Samuel. We made it to chapter 6. If you want to read along with me, let's begin with verse 1. Again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. So David is now, it's the same David and Goliath David. Now he's the king of not just the tribe of Judah, but all the tribes of Israel collectively. Uh, he's been elected as king or nominated, inaugurated, officially king, uh, anointed the king of the uh, nation. And now he's ruling over 30,000 people, choice people. That'd be about basically his army. He went from 600 to now 30,000. Uh, verse 2, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Bali, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name the Lord of hosts, the who dwells between the cherubim. So that seems to be the official full title name of the entity that they're worshiping, um, the Lord of hosts. Um, so presumably the Lord, but also of hosts, meaning not singular, but several uh, entities with the Lord. Lord also being translated from, um, well, that's a tricky thing in this time. And this is what I, we've talked about before. Lord in this verse, well, first let's start with God. It's saying God here is being translated from the word Elohim. It's God with the capital G and lowercase O-D for the word God. The word Lord is in all capitals. And at this point in the chapter, it's being translated from the name Jehovah. And then of hosts who dwell between, who dwells between the cherubim, that would be those sort of angelic type beings that um, sort of enshroud the throne where the Lord, the entity dwells. And just keep that in mind as we keep reading, because if I recall, this chapter is gonna um, change the uh, translation of what the English word Lord is translated from. But um, right now, that's what it's, that's what's being um, revered as the Lord at this point in the chapter. That's who is being revered. The Lord of hosts who dwells between the cherubim. Um, verse 3. And, that, and that's in reference to specifically the ark. And the ark is set up as sort of a relic, a religious article uh, for worship that resembles the, um, presumably, the presentation or the presence of the Lord sitting on the throne with the two cherubs, cherubim, excuse me, with their wings extended out to cover the seat, so-called the mercy, so-called mercy seat or throne, um, where the Lord dwells, and um, all of this again contradicts what the New Testament tells us about the Lord. That no one's heard the Lord's voice or seen the Lord's form at any time, and yet you have these interactions with the Lord. Uh, and I'm just going to say it's the Lord because that's how it reads, not because I believe it's God Almighty. But it is the entity or deity that was worshipped as particular people's Lord at the time. So I'm just going to say the Lord as usual. Um, and the whole Ark is the same Ark that's referred to in the pop culture movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark. In that movie where um, they're trying to retrieve the uh, Ark of the Covenant. It's that same Ark. Okay, so verse 3. So they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill 
and Uzziah, I'm sorry, Uzzah, and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new carts. As always, please forgive me if I mispronounce any of these. It's giving us a layout here of who is um, being responsible for the carts movements at this point. Verse four, and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill accompanying the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. So they're moving the ark along. Verse five, then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments of fir wood, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on sistrums, and on cymbals. So there's a whole orchestra of people playing music uh, as the ark moves along. Verse six, and when they came to Nashon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, but the oxen stumbled. So we're about to get to another seemingly irrational action on the Lord's part where we've, but let's just read it. So what's happened here now is as they're moving along the ark, it, um, one of the animals that are moving it stumbles and it seems to be a point where the ark is about to tumble over because the ox stumbled that's pulling it. So someone reached out their hand to keep it from falling over. So trying to be helpful. But look at the response that person gets. Verse 7, then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah and God struck him there for his error. And he died there by the ark of God. So his error was trying to be helpful. His error was um, putting out his hand to touch the religious articles, those things that is considered sacred, that only certain people could even approach or touch, namely the priests. So um, because of that, the Lord now, it seems, and I'm just, again, I'm just saying it's the Lord because that's how it reads, lashes out at the person trying to be helpful and strikes him down and kills him. Um, th that doesn't seem like the nature or character of God Almighty, since um, We've seen other incidents where it seems the Lord doesn't pay any attention to it at all to act on their behalf, not just while well, we see the things like the rapes, the incest, the abuse that we've seen, the enslavement of some people um, being all completely tolerated and overlooked without a response at all from the quote unquote Lord, yet someone trying to be helpful gets struck down instantly when um, they try to be helpful. That doesn't seem like character of uh, God Almighty to be so partial, so biased, uh, so irrational, but it is how it reads, so that's how we're reading it. But to stand by, to lash out instantly when someone does something like that, but then to stand by silently with the other things we just mentioned, the rapes, the incest, the abuse, or even modern times, um, George Floyd, for instance, and all sorts of other evils that have happened before and between and since then. Um, the Lord is silently just doesn't do anything, but then someone trying to help keep the Ark of the Covenant from being um, from tumbling over when an animal stumbles instantly gets a response from the Lord. That doesn't seem like that's God Almighty at all. But if it is God Almighty, then that means God is entirely um, uh, uh, inconsistent, like at best. Um, because why wouldn't um, such some some of the other atrocities like Holocaust get that sort of instant response from the Lord? Um, but someone trying to be helpful does. It doesn't make sense to me, but it's how it reads. So let's just keep reading. So Uzzah tried to help 
and ended up dying for trying to help um, by putting out his hands to keep the covenant, Ark of the Covenant, from falling. Um, I guess what he should have did is just let the ox, the animal, stumble and then leave it up to the Lord to intervene divinely, supernaturally, and have the ark just float or not tumble over or save the, the ox from falling over. I don't know. I guess he was supposed to not intervene and just let the Lord handle it. Uh, well, he won't do it again. Verse 8, And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. So there's um, a reason it's called Perez, we read earlier, um, stands for outbreak um, or breakthrough. Um, that's um, how it's translated when it's when a person, someone of the, one of the forefathers, patriarchs, is named Perez. Here it's being translated to outburst and um, against Uzzah is what he's naming it there. And it says to this day, and that again lets us know it's a retrospective account of someone looking back on these events and um, documenting them or scribing them. And otherwise, it wouldn't need to say to this day, meaning to the point where this was written down as the book of Second Samuel, presumably, since Samuel was long dead at this point, he couldn't possibly have written it. Um, so it's someone looking back on these events and saying, oh, to the point to this day when I wrote this down, it's still being called Perez Uza to this day. I don't know that in this modern times of 2022 that it's still being called uh, Perez Uza, but to the point where it was documented, then it was. Um, so verse 9, David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So now because he's seen the reaction that mishandling the ark can get the person who mishandles it, getting them struck down instantly, it put sort of fear into David, uh, though he was in the process of moving the ark from one place to another. Uh, verse 10, so David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David, but David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. So David is so terrified that he stops moving the ark um, to, to where he had intended it to be, the city of David, also called Jerusalem, also called Jebus. Um He's decided to instead put it in someone else's house, Obed-Edom, uh, the Gittite. Um, so the Gittites were another nation of people historically, um, even outside of the Bible that existed. And Obed-Edom, I don't know why, but that sounds like a black person's name to me. Um, not to say that many of the other characters we're reading about now aren't also people of color, um, but just something about that name sounds it to me. Uh, but that's just you know, my opinion. So anyway, he's moving the ark to Obed-Edom's house. And presumably his name is Obed-Edom because he is from the area of Edom or a descendant of the person who was called Edom. And Obed was, I guess, his first name. And Edom is sort of his surname. Um, that's just, again, my guess. That doesn't mean that's the case. Whatever the case may be, that's whose house David decided to set the ark up at instead of bringing it into Jerusalem. Verse 11, I, so I guess he didn't mind if the Lord would strike out against, lash out against Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Um, and the Gittites weren't even part of the Israelites also. So it seems kind of weird that he's taking a religious article of his own people 
and entrusting it to the um, care of another people. But it's hard reads. Verse 11, and the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. So it seems that the connection to the ark not only can um, carry um, instant death if you mishandle it, but it can also carry blessings, bring blessings along with it, and it just being in its presence. Um, verse 12, now it was told King David saying, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. So again, that reveals um, not only the power associated with being around the ark, um, so much so that David got over his fear um, and went on to take possession of it, but it also reveals the character of David. We've seen how treacherous and, and how much like a scoundrel he is in some of his previous actions. Now you see he's quite selfish also. And um, he's willing now to, now that he sees the ark won't kill you to be around it um, necessarily if you just handle it right, apparently. Now he's willing to go ahead and take possession of it and take it away from Obed-Edom, who's been blessed according to all accounts um, by having it in his presence. Not a very honorable person, it seems, so far at all. Verse 13, and so it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces and he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. So now he's probably still kind of terrified of what can happen if he mishandles it. So every few steps, every six paces that people take bearing the ark, um, presumably the animals again, but people guiding it, he'd have um, animal sacrifices be a part of the journey, presumably to keep the Lord from lashing out at him again or lashing out at uh, through mishandling the ark again. Verse 14, then David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So um, he's really terrified, but he's also putting on a show, presumably to try and do everything he can to please the Lord and keep the Lord from lashing out again. Um, so much so that he's dancing along with the orchestra playing along with the movement of the ark and the animal sacrifices that are happening as the ark moves toward his house. Um, and it says he's wearing a linen ephod. We've read previously what the ephod is. It's an ornamental vest, uh, generally worn by the priests, but anyone can wear one. He's wearing an ephod here and it's saying it's made of linen. And they're saying that for a specific reason because verse 15, so David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. So um, it's a whole orchestra. People are rejoicing and celebrating and singing and dancing as the ark is making its move from one place to the other. Verse 16. Now, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David weeping and whirling before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. So, um, She's, um, Michael is um, Saul, the dead king's daughter, and she was given as property as a wife to David um, after he killed Goliath. Then, uh, in a moment of treachery, Saul took her from David and gave her to someone else. Um, David still acquired other wives' side pieces and concubines. In the meantime, 
But then after Saul was dead and after Saul, uh, David arose to power, he demanded his wife be given back to him. So she was, that's who Michael is and now she's uh, rejoined David as one of his wives. Um, but um, in the meantime, before then, she had apparently had fallen in love with the husband she was given to, so much so that the husband she was given to was whining and crying the whole time following as she was given back to David. So presumably that love, that connection was mutual uh, between her and the other husband, especially considering how she's reacting now to um, David's actions on his way back to where she is. Um, verse 17. So they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. Then David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. So the ark has made it back, has made it to the place that David has set up for it, the shrine basically, and um, more animal sacrifices and offerings are being made to um, go along with the event. Verse 18, and when David had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. So now he's also acting not only as king, but sort of as high priest for the people. Because remember, Samuel is dead, who was sort of a high priest. And then all of the priests that were um, of aid to David when he was on the run from Saul, they were killed by Saul. He executed all but one of them. And so um, why I don't know why David would be the one offering the blessing at this point, but it says that's what he's doing instead of Abiathar the high priest that he had who was spared or at least escaped the massacre of all the other priests. Um, but that's what it says he did. So that's what we're reading. Uh, he gave the blessing um, for the offering. Verse 19, then he distributed among all the people, among the whole multitude of Israel, both the women and the men, to everyone a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. So, that, so all the people departed, everyone to his house. So it's sounding more like his way of winning the favor of the people who he now represents by um, the animal sacrifices being barbecued. He's given the people meat and bread to eat so that um, something similar happened recent in, recently in American history. I think they said something like one of the presidents, it was probably like 60, 50, 60, 70 years ago. It was a few presidents ago. Um, that one of their campaign promises, I think, was something like uh, chicken in every pot so that the people would know that one of the th things he was going to deal with is poverty and making sure everyone has something to eat. So it seems that's what David also is using um, to win over the people by giving them food and, um, and dessert even and sending them back to their house along with the barbecue, the roast that he's made with the animal sacrifices so that people can head home with something to eat, not head home hungry. Verse 20, then David returned to bless his household and Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids of his servants as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. So his wife, Michael, one of his wives, is um, sort of scorning him for the way he was carrying on with the dancing and carrying on with the ephod, because presumably the ephod is that uh, vest 
and it's probably kind of short, like a mini skirt. Because remember, skirts and dresses only recently are things that are limited to women by uh, cultural norms, but not historically. Men historically wore what we'd call skirts and what we'd call a dress. Um, pants hadn't been a thing yet. Shorts hadn't become a thing yet. So um, it, that whole norm and um, of society and the opposition to what clothes you wear, the cross-dressing, transgenderism, all of that is just made up stuff by um, Bible thumpers. It's not actually factual biblically at all. It's nothing but a way of herding people into a way of thinking to make other people, the others, literally, make people the others, point the finger at them, condemn them, while the other fingers point back at you and your own actions so that you can ignore all of that and keep the attention focused, or they can keep the attention focused on someone else to demonize rather than being circumspect about one's own behavior and, and, and overlooking the fact that none of it is true at all. That's what we do here on The Naked Truth to try and see what the Bible actually says as opposed to what your Bible-thumping preachers and on heart may even say. Because we've seen again and again, what it actually says is very different than what popular religion will say about lots of things, whether it be about homosexuality or about transgender people, about race. It's very, very different in all those different things than what um, modern religion will tell you it says. It's completely different. And yet the lie is just more popular than the truth is, sadly. Um, but the truth will set you free. And as Christians, that's one of the main uh, tenets of Christianity, one of the red letters of the things Jesus has told us. The truth will set you free. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And it really does. Whereas believing a lie is a slippery slope into bondage. But back to where we're at, verse 21. So David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who's, who chose me instead of your father and all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord. Oh, so again, the whole thing about the ephod and it being like a skirt, that was her, what she chose to make issue with. It's probably something like a mini skirt or at, at best, a vest that goes down just below your cheeks. So that if he's dancing and whirling and, and, and all of that, as he's moving around, his genitals, his privates are being visible to the people. That's what she's uh, pointing out, that in his dancing and whirling, people could see his uh, goodies. And she's saying it's shameful for him to carry on like that, like any of the base people, any of the common people would be doing. She's saying it's uh, disgraceful for the king to carry on like that. And he's letting her know, well, disgraceful or not, he's the one who the Lord chose to replace her father and um, his family um, as the uh, royal heirs to the throne. Verse 22, and I will be even more undignified than this and will be humble in my own sight. But as for the maidservants of whom you've spoken, by them I will be held in honor. So he's saying he's going to keep acting a fool if that's how she sees it. Um, because it seems his behavior is good in God's eyes and that he's going to continue to show himself off and clown like she sees him clowning. And as far as the girls she's concerned with, the maidservants, 
that she's concerned with them seeing his uh, private parts. He's saying they don't seem to have any problem with it. They hold him in high esteem. They look up to him, even though she's not pleased with his behavior. And she's his wife, one of his wives. And that's probably also part of her issue, that she's not the only wife. She's got to share him with lots of people, including the public, including whatever other women he decides to marry and bring along. But as a woman in the Bible, biblical times and in modern times in many places, you don't get a whole lot of say. You just get to uh, be owned, given in marriage, literally, by your parent, a father, generally, or uh, given in marriage by some other man in your life, given as property, something that would make anyone who has freedom resent that, I would think. Although a lot of women embrace that idea, especially the right-wing Bible-thumping women of America, they embrace the idea of being some man's property, whether it's their father's or their husband's. And I say, let them embrace that. Give them what they want. If they don't want equal rights with men, then don't give them equal rights with men. But don't make that, enforce that on every woman, on everyone else. Take their voting rights away from them so that at least um, then the rest of the people who have those voting rights can enjoy them and give those rights to people who want them. If they don't want those rights, don't force them on them. Give them what they want. Then maybe they'll finally wake up and snap out of it instead of giving them, not giving them what they want and still giving them the benefit that other people have. Then in that way, you just enable the, the brainwashing. If you continue to let people have it both ways, you're not going to get people to wake up at all. And that's probably the whole point of it, to keep people from being, quote unquote, woke, keep people brainwashed in the fog where they continue to vote against and act against their own best interests. But if you just start giving people what they say they want, start giving these people who say they want small government, give them small government, cut off all government benefits, whether it's a stimulus check, whether it's a social security check, whether it's a welfare check, whether it's food stamps, whether it's an HOA loan, I'm sorry, HOA, a, a small SBA loan or an FFA loan for house, cut off all of that because all of that is welfare or anything that the government is funding is welfare. You may put a nice name on it when it's um, not a black person and call it a subsidy, but it's still wel welfare. If it's a GI bill, uh, if it's um, any of those benefits, they're all welfare. And so if you give people what they want, that smaller government, and cut them off and save all that money for people who accept it, then you'll see a quick turnaround in the whole political system of this country and maybe even the world since this country rules over what a lot of the world does. It is, in my opinion, the Babylon of Revelation. If anything in Revelation is true, um, then the prophecy of a nation a country, a city being Babylon in the end times, it has to be America. Because where else does that sort of hypocrisy get fed systematically? No place else like America. Um, so anyway, um, David's saying he's going to keep doing what he's doing because apparently it's pleasing the people and it's pleasing to God. Um, verse 23, therefore Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. So that is the narrator and again it can't be samuel because samuel has died a while back and the only um we still heard from him according to the narrative since he died in the seance that david had hired a medium to perform 
Then we heard from Samuel again. But this book is called the second book of Samuel. But Samuel was dead in the first book of Samuel. So it can't possibly be Samuel writing these things down. It has to be some sort of scribe or something, someone later on documenting these things. That's what I'm going to mean, what I mean when I say the narrator. So it's here the narrator is adding their own um, editorializing of what they believe is the reason for Michael's barrenness from then on. It's saying that she had, um, um, she had no children to the day of her death. They're putting that on the fact that she despised David's behavior in acting uh, what she considers disgracefully, showing off himself, uh, letting his private parts being exposed as he's dancing in front of public, in the public. And in her contradicting or her condemning his behavior, the narrator here in verse 23 seems to be saying that that's the reason she couldn't have any kids, because she had the nerve to condemn David for acting a fool. Um, um, at least that's how it reads. Um, but that may or may not be the reason she was barren at all. You know why she didn't have any more kids at all or have any kids at all. Who knows? That's what the narrator is saying, though. They're putting that her um, inability to have children on the fact that she condemned David. Whether that's the case or not, God only knows. But that was the last verse in this chapter, so that's where we'll end this reading. As always, thank you for joining me for The Naked Truth. I hope it's a blessing for you and that you'll join me again. I love you, and I'll see you next time. Peace be with you.